You know, I'm a pastor. And those are my three favorite roles. Those are the most important things that I do. But one of the difficulties in a role, as you are well accustomed to, uh, is that in those roles, you still wear many hats. And knowing which hat to wear in what situation is really where the difficulty lies, isn't it? There's a, there's a certain kind of discernment. There's a certain kind of wisdom that you have to have if you're going to do this well. You know, as a father, the role that I have sometimes is the role of cop. Sometimes it's the role of protector and defender. Sometimes it's the role of disciplinarian. Sometimes it's the role of, of encourager, sometimes it's mentor, and then sometimes it's all of those combined. And it's the same thing with being a pastor. Sometimes the role is to encourage, and sometimes the role is to chastise, and sometimes, like today, the role is to both warn and lift up. And I say that to say that I really wrestled with today's passage because, you know, I, the one, the one part of me says that, that we're just kind of over, um, overwhelmed with what's going on in culture. I mean, there's so much that is being, being given to us. We're just bombarded with news, and it's almost like we just want to jump into the world of, of rainbows and unicorns. Am I right? How many of you like to just go into rainbows and unicorns, just stay there, go la, 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 pretend like nothing else is going on? I mean, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But, but that doesn't help us because as soon as we open up our eyes, we realize we're not in unicorns and rainbows. We're in lions and alligators and chaos. And so today what I want to do is I'm going to share with you a passage of Scripture that I came across earlier this week, and I, and I heard it first mentioned by Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans, a pastor, and I believe he's in Dallas. And when I heard this passage, I go, yes, that is the word for today. But, but it's a passage that was given a couple thousand years ago. But it's still exactly what we need today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. There was a king of Judah by the name of Asa, and Asa was a good king for the most part. And during his reign, the Bible says it was 30-something years of peace, and, and there was trouble free. And the reason that, that there was that many years of peace was because he chose to make a stand. And he chose to, within his sphere of influence, do what was right according to what he was in charge of. And I'm going to tell you what the ending is so you know where we're going. I'm going to say to you that God's command to you, God, what God is expecting of you, is to place the things that you're in control of underneath the Lordship of Christ. You cannot fix the world. I cannot fix the world. We can't end racism. We cannot cause people to start loving each other. We cannot end wars. We cannot feed every hungry child in the world. But what we can do is what we can do where we can do it. Amen? This needs to be interactive. Y'all need y'all's help, right? What we can do is what we can do where we can do it. So instead of being overwhelmed with the world's problems, instead of saying, this is too much... We need to say, you know what? God has drawn these boundaries for me. And where he's given me authority, that is where I'm going to live. And that is where I'm going to act. And I'm going to do what God has called me to do where he's called me to do it. Interestingly enough, if you want to solve the world's problems, you've got to start with your own problems. 
And then God expands your influence to more and more people. You know that, right? And in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, we find the telling of a story. Now, Chronicles is, is uh, basically... Um, it's a recounting of biblical events. So a lot of things in Chronicles have been recounted in other places, like in Kings and the like. But what we have here is a concise version of events. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, the Bible says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without a true God, without the priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him. And he was found by them. In those days, it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the lands were in great turmoil." One nation was being crushed by another, and one city by another, because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for God will reward your work. So Asa is approached by a prophet. This prophet, the Bible says, had the Spirit of God that came upon him. And the prophet went out to meet Asa. And he also, by doing that, spoke not only to Judah, but also to Benjamin. In other words, it was a very public confrontation, if you will. He stood there and he spoke the words of God to Asa. And here were his words. He said, listen to me, Asa and Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him... He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. We live in a time where we believe that God will be whatever we want him to be. And we live in a time where our culture says that God will always show up. God will always fix things. God will always, will always heal things. But I'm going to tell you, that's not what the Bible teaches. Right here, God's word to Asa and the people of God was this. The Lord is with you when you are with him. We hear all the time, God is faithful to you even when you're faithful, unfaithful to Him. There is an element of truth in that, but there's also an element of untruth in that. The Lord is faithful to us, or excuse me, He's faithful to Himself, and we see that faithfulness given to us as well when we're seeking after Him. But if you turn your back on God, if we turn our back on God, we need to expect that God is going to turn his back on us. Say, oh, God would never do that. I present to you the Old Testament. I present to you the whole Bible. God is not just some cosmic force that is giving us whatever we ask for, whether or not we honor him, praise him, glorify him, and all the other things, give him the things that he deserves. No, we live in a relationship with God if we're followers of Jesus. And our disobedience eventually is going to lead to God moving his hand from us. Why? Because he loves us. Now there's a term that if you are a teacher, you're very familiar with this term. You're at least familiar with the first one, but you, you know the concept of the second one. The first term was coined, I don't know if 
20 years ago or so. It's called a lawnmower parent. You know what a lawnmower parent is? Excuse me. It's called a helicopter parent. Ah, darn it. I messed it up. A helicopter parent is one who hovers over their child, making sure their child never gets hurt, right? That's why you no longer can see kids climbing trees. Back in my day, we didn't have helicopter parents. We had permissive parents. You want to go play in traffic? Go ahead. Knock yourself out, right? You want to go, go hike through the city? Go ahead. No, it's not that they didn't love us. They just, they, we had a little bit more freedom. But somewhere along the way, those freedom kids had kids and they started controlling everything. They started to hover over and make sure, oh, she's going to fall. Oh, she's going to get hurt. And you had all these knee pads and helmets. And Do you know the kinds of stuff that we did without any type of protective gear at all? How did we live? Amen? If you're my age, you know what I'm talking about, right? We did things we probably shouldn't tell our kids about. Because not only should we be arrested for them, but we also should be dead multiple times over, right? Now, I know my son right now is making a list. No, that's not what I'm saying here. Do not repeat these words. But see, a helicopter parent then shifted to a lawnmower parent. And I'm telling you this because the way we see God is exactly correlated to how we see our parents and to how our parents are. That's why being a father, being a mother, is so important that you do it well. Because you are shaping your child's understanding of who God the Father is. And they will have to work through what you show them is God if it's not correct. They will have to get through all of that to eventually find out who truly the character and nature of God is. So mom and dad, it's your job and my job to do this stuff well because our job is to point them to who God is. The new term is this. It's a lawnmower parent. Have you all ever heard of that before? Here it is. You're going to recognize it. A lawnmower parent is one who goes in front of their kids and wipes away and cuts down every obstacle and hardship so their kid never has to experience any kind of pain or suffering at all. Right? You ever seen that? Do we live in a time of, helicopter, of, of uh, lawnmower parents? A kid gets in trouble. Back in my day, if I got arrested, I was staying in jail. I was told that. Son, I ain't coming to bail you out. At least I think I was told that. If I wasn't told that, it was inferred, okay? My dad is right back here. Right? Today, you have parents coming up and cussing out the cops. Well, you can't do that. Well, ma'am, they broke the law. Yeah, but he's only a kid. You know what I'm saying? You see this in our culture. So today we have a culture where we believe that there should never be hardship. There never should be trouble. There should never be any type of obstructions in our path. It should just be easy peasy because we deserve it. And we treat God that way as well. As a culture. What was being said to Asa is this very thing. Asa was being told, you cannot walk away from God and expect that God is just going to keep blessing you. You cannot walk away from God and serve other gods and think that God is just going to say, you know what, I'll just let that one slip. I'm going to provide for you. No, in fact, the very opposite happened. God said, if you walk away from me, then I am going to lift my hand from you and I'm going to allow you to get what it is you say you want. It's called an autonomous zone. I want you to think about this. What's an autonomous zone? 
Well, in Seattle, it means it's a place where there's no cops. They don't want cops, they don't want firefighters, they don't want any authorities. They want to police themselves. They're autonomous. We live in a culture that leans towards autonomous zone when it comes to our relationship with the creator of the universe. And as the old farmer used to tell me in Brookhaven, Mississippi, the roosters are going to come home. Or chickens, or one of those things. One of those animals is going to come home to roost. What was he talking about? Well, if you ever had any chickens, you know what I'm talking about, right? We had chickens in the backyard, had six of them. They would go and play in the backyard, but they always came back to the same spot every night. Why? Because they're always going to come back to where it's comfortable. They're always going to come back to where they started. If we think that as a nation, as a people, as a church, we can be an autonomous zone and God is just going to say, you know what, I'll let that slide. I'm just still going to bless you. We don't understand the Bible. I think that if we look at current events, what we're seeing is a removal of the hand of God upon the people who say that they are one nation under God. Because we still think that because God is on our money and because God is in our, our, our swearing in and because we have, we have images of spiritual things in public life, at least to a degree, we still think that God bless America is reality. And folks, I want to tell you that God doesn't bless those who totally turn their back upon Him. Amen? He doesn't. What God does is do exactly what we ask. We want an autonomous zone. God says, okay, here you go. He removes himself and he lets people do what people do. And you get what you're seeing in Seattle. You get chaos and you get conflict and you get power struggles and you get greed and you get all these things. And that is where we're headed as a nation. But you see, remember I told you it was hard to know what kind of hat to wear? Here's where I want to make that clear. I want this morning to paint a picture to you of his, uh, the, most real, the most real picture I can, but paint it in such a way that brings out the truth of God's Word that says that He is still God. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And the God who blessed the, the people of Israel is the same God who will bless His people today if we simply do what they did. And that is, they turn to the Lord. If you continue reading this, it says, The Lord is with you when you are with them. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Here's what's really great about this verse. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you, if you really look at the Hebrew in here, what you will find is a different sense of this. It's not that if I seek for him, I'm going to find him as if he's trying to hide from us. It's if you seek him, he will make himself be found to you. It's the difference between playing hide-and-go-seek with a teenager and with a toddler. With a teenager, you don't want to be found. So you hide in places that they would never find you. At least you try to, right? And even when you see them searching, you are still quiet and silent, and you let them walk on by you because the win winning the game means they don't find you. When you play with a toddler, it's a totally different uh, outcome, right? When you play with a toddler, the game is actually to be found. 
So you hide somewhere like this, right? And your three-year-old's running by, and they run on by you, and they come up, and, and, and because you're not looking at them, they don't think that you know they're, that they know you're there, right? And so, so they touch you, and they're like, hi, and you're like, hi, you got me, you got me. It's a great game. I hear it's really better to play with grandkids than it is to play with children. That's what I'm told. That's what the, that's what the old people tell me. Oh. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not too far, I'm sure. Oh, wait, I'm not sure. I hope, wait, wait a minute, let me rephrase that. Never mind, you know what I mean. <laughs> wow, didn't go there. God says, if you search for me, I will make myself found unto you. Because God is not about the game of staying mysterious, mysterious. He's about being known. He's about relationship. He's about being a father. That's why the names of God, when you look at them, all together, he is the perfect father. He says, if you will seek for me, you will find me. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you. A plan to give you a hope and a future. But if you keep going for a few verses more, he says, Search for me and you will find me when you search with all of your heart. My question to you, church, is this. Are you searching after God? Or are you just living your life hoping and praying that God will show up in the times of hardship? Because there's a time... And I believe that time is now for us to choose you this day whom you will serve. It is time today to stop playing religious games, to stop pretending that we're faithful, even though oftentimes that faithfulness is really idolatry. It is time today to say our world is going in a completely opposite direction than what is of God. And therefore, I will choose to order my world in a way that is honoring to Jesus in every area and every facet of it. The call to the church is not to surrender. It's not to just capitulate to the, to the mind of the world. The call to the church is to stand with courage and be on the winning side, which happens to be God's side. You might stand alone if you're standing with God, but God plus you is always the majority. In fact, I'll make it even simpler. God plus no one is always the majority. You say, well, well, how can I stand against these things in my sphere of influence? It's going to cost me something. You better believe it's going to cost you something. Did you expect it wouldn't? But it's, it's, going, to, it's going to end some friendships or it's going to strain some relationships. Absolutely. Well, I'll skip to it now because it, I was going to get to it later. But listen to verse 16. King Asa also deposed his grandmother from her position as queen mother. You want to talk about hard? You go against granny. That takes courage, don't it? He basically went to her and said, Look, I appreciate you. I love you, but you are no longer queen mother. You are no longer in this position of authority. You are no longer in this position of power. You have been stripped from your leadership roles. You do that to your grandma, and you tell me how that works out. Yeah. 
Why did he do it? Because he feared God more than he feared man. And church, what I want to say to you is this. You're going to fear someone. Fear the one who is truly to be feared. I'm not talking about I'm afraid of you. I'm talking about a reverent, this is who I want to please in my life. I want to please God the Father, not my neighbor or my sister or my brother or my mom or my dad or whatever. So if we go back up to the text, verse 3, For a long time Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought Him, and He was found by them. So in other words, they recognized things are not good. And in their distress, they turned to Him. It was the toddler running by and God saying, Here I am. They turned to him. They began this relationship where they were being faithful to him and where he was demonstrating his faithfulness in their lives. Now, what is God's faithfulness? He promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. He promised that you'll not be alone. He promised that you'll have power from on high. He promised that you'll be his witnesses. He also promised that the world will hate you because you're his disciple. He promised in this world you'll have many troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. He promised to provide for you because he's a father. He promised to protect you, although protection doesn't necessarily always mean what you think it means. I do not think it means what you think it means. That's that's what happens. See, we approach God from our own perspective of how we think God should act because, because we think he's human. And he's not. He is God. Get this, get this in your heart. He is sovereign, which means he doesn't ask anybody's opinion. And he has the right to be sovereign. Amen? The next time you create the world and the earth and all that is in it, you can be sovereign. But until that time, God has already got that position. Isn't it funny how we accuse God of so many different things? You're unfair. You're unkind. How can you let this happen? How can you let that happen? I point you to the book of Job. When Job stood before God and God questioned him, somewhere around chapter 37 or so, it's a marvelous uh, discourse between God. It's actually a monologue. It's not really a, a dialogue. God says, stand before me like a man. Like a, like a man. Like a man. Let me question you. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were set? Where were you when I put the waters in its place? Where were you when I formed the mountains? Where were you when all of these things were done? And I have a feeling that Job was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Oh, that God would put us in our place. What if we actually believed that God was God and we were not? You know what we would do? We would do what Asa did. We would begin to order our own sphere of influence in a way that honored God, not in a way that honored the things that we idol. In verse 8, When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, he removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah. He repaired the altars of the Lord that was in front of the portico in the Lord's temple. He did two things that I think that we are called to do. 
Number one, he removed the detestable idols. Now, how do you remove an idol unless you recognize an idol? To recognize an idol, you have to actually know your own heart, right? You can't remove an idol that you don't acknowledge is an idol. So my word to you today is this. Begin the, the, the process of examining your own heart and recognizing your own idols. What is an idol? An idol is anything that comes before God. An idol is not bad in and of itself. An idol becomes bad, or some things are idols that are just bad, but an idol becomes bad when we place it in the wrong order of our life. It can be family. Your family can be an idol. It can be work. Your work can be an idol. It can be your position of authority. It can be your position of, uh, of influence. It can, be, it can be the things that you have. Listen, you don't need me to tell you what your idols are. I got enough of my own to deal with. But if you want to let Jesus be sovereign in your life, you've got to deal with breaking down your detestable idols. And then once you break down the idols, the next thing is set up the places of worship. Now, I'm not saying that for us we set a place of worship. It's the idea of we're going to get back to the, we're going to get back to the heart of how we were created to be. We were created to worship the Lord God. And notice that he did this in front of all the people. There was no question what was going on. I think sometimes we want to be secret agent Christians. We want to we do things as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. That's impossible. The Bible tells us that we are the aroma of Christ. I used to work at uh, several different restaurants in, in college. One of them was God's favorite piece of chicken. Uh, it was Chick-fil-A. But the thing about working at Chick-fil-A, I was back in the back as a, as a fryer. Okay, excuse me, as a pressure cooker. Because we know they don't fry stuff, they pressure cook it. Isn't that right? At least that, that used to be the big deal. That was when KFC became KFC instead of Kentucky Fried Chicken because KFC is healthier than the fried stuff. So here's the thing though. I would work and when I would come back home, when I say home, it was my dorm room. I would come into the dorm room and, and everybody in the dorm knew that the Chick-fil-A dude was back. Because there would be this aroma following me, right? You can't work around grease like that and not smell like it. It permeates your clothes. It gets into your hair. I'm convinced it gets into your skin and into your blood, which is their plan. I'm convinced. I had flour all over my pants. And I mean, it was just, it was really a sight to see. And, and, and it's the same thing for you as a believer in Jesus. You are to have the aroma of Christ Jesus. That when you walk into the room, they know that you are with God. They'll only know that you're with God if you have the aroma, but you will only have the aroma if you are with God. And so our calling as believers is to order our world, the things we're responsible for, and do so publicly, not secretly, but we do that, the only way to do that is for us to, to, to make our understanding of our responsibility very, very simple. And here it is. Your job is to know the Father. 
That's it. Your job in life is to know the Father. Because if you know the Father, you are going to be like the Father. And if you are like the Father, here's what you are like. You are good. You are kind. You are humble. You are gentle. You are patient. Does that sound familiar to you? It's called the what? Fruit of the Spirit. Because when you know the Father, when you spend time with the Father, the Father places Himself inside of you and you become conformed to the image of His Son. And you start doing the things that Jesus did in a world that is foreign to the things that Jesus did. And so Asa began to order his world. Now he was king, we're not, so he had a little more influence But as he did these things, he did it, and he said to the people, from here on out, we are going to be faithful to the Lord. Because he knew that if he found the Lord, his people would be blessed. Now, I don't want you to be mistaken, though. Because it's it's sometimes preached, not here, but in other places, that being faithful to the Lord means that you're just going to be blessed with a bigger Mercedes... And two planes, not one. And you're going to have plenty in your bank account. And God is going to open up doors and he's going to, going to give you a, a pedestal and an opportunity. But the, the scripture says quite the opposite, doesn't it? Well, actually it says both. Sometimes God blesses us and puts us in a place where we just go, you know what, I, I cannot believe the, the, the blessing of God in terms of, of, of what he's given to me. But I also know that it's not mine, it's God's. And so I use that to bless the rest of the world or to bless the people who need blessed. But for others, the journey is a little different. For others, it's a journey of pain and suffering, imprisonment. You say, well, well, why does God do that? How does he choose? I wish I could answer that for you. All I know is that Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. All I know is that he said, in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart because I've overcome the world. I just know that the Bible tells us that that all the world will hate you because of me, and you will be in prison, you will be persecuted, and yes, some of you will even lose your life. But you know what I've discovered? God seems to be able to speak louder through the suffering than he can through the blessing. God speaks louder through the suffering than he does through the blessing. Now, this, this, this scares me to death because I don't understand it. But I've seen it. When you take a man or a woman who is placed into prison. Now, we don't see this in our country. We do see it just across the ocean. You take a man or a woman, you put them in prison. And then you have a, a jailer who beats the believer beats him to a bloody pulp. And that believer, scarred and bruised and cut and bleeding, looks at his aggressor and says, Sir, I do not hate you. I cannot hate you. And I forgive you. That abuser has seen something that he can see nowhere else on the planet. What he's seeing is the face of of God. That face looks different than a face that says, I have a new plane. 
God has blessed me. Which one attracts you more in terms of you really do know God? God gives you plain, that's awesome, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you, I hope I'm your friend. But it's in the suffering that I see that, that faith is genuinely tested to the point of saying, you know what, I'm not doing this because it's popular. I'm doing this because I know, I've tasted and I've seen that God is good and God is sovereign. It's those moments where all of the world around us seems to be just breaking and it's thing after thing after thing and we, 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 are, we are at our, our, our tipping point and time and time again, just before we go over the edge, we say, God, I, I don't understand, I just trust you. And our neighbor is watching and they finally come over and say, I don't get it. How do you still have faith when all these things are going on? It's because your neighbor sees the face of God in the midst of your adversity. You know, that's not what I want. That's not what you want. But part of the deal of becoming a follower of Jesus means that you will follow him because you've taken up your cross, you've denied yourself, and you followed him. Why are we afraid of that? You know, I wonder, I often wonder, the people we place as heroes, how they would rank in the, the book of heroes to God. I mean, we, 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 we rate heroes based on how big their church is, how good of a speaker they are, how, how they can keep a crowd focused. What did they write? You know, bestseller list or whatever. Did they do something giant? I have a feeling that, that the kingdom of God is upside down. That his heroes are the widows who when they have nothing left, they still are faithfully giving to God. It's the it's the young college-age student in Taiwan who gives up his dream of being a doctor, who embarrasses his family name, and who says yes to be an evangelist hiking to the remote places of his region to talk about Jesus with absolute and complete rejection over and over and over. It's about the pastor in India that I met who said to me, my wife, when I came to know Jesus, my wife divorced me. She said, I am, you are dead to me. My children have nothing to do with me. My entire family can, took away my entire inheritance. I sleep on the concrete floor of my church building. And I asked stupidly, well, why, why did you do this? His answer, what else could I do? Jesus called me. Asa ordered his world according to faithfulness to God. He deposed his own grandmother. That's commitment. I want to finish this up with verse 7. Verse 7 says, this is the prophet speaking to Asa. As for you, be strong 
and do not give up. For your work will be rewarded. My message to you today is this. Order your own sphere of influence according to obedience to Jesus Christ, regardless of the cost. Because God has shown over and over again that God is the majority, always. He told this one man named Gideon. Oh, I love this. Gideon was up to fight a giant army of thousands and tens of thousands of of, of trained warriors. Gideon calls his people together. He's got 10,000. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I, I, think, I mean, we're, we're like outnumbered 10 to 1, but I think, I think God is with us. We can do this. And God says, well, I'm going to have to make some adjustments to your army. You, you got a few too many. Okay, great. So what do I do? Send them down to the river and watch how they drink. The ones who go down and lap with their tongues are one crowd, and the ones who scoop with their hands and drink is another crowd. He goes, okay, got it. So he goes down and he watches. The majority of them lap like a dog. Some of them scoop with the water. And I'm sure he was thinking to himself, man, this is great. I'm only losing about 300. And God goes, oh, oh, no, I think you got that wrong. You only get to keep 300. He made an announcement. Men of Israel, thank you for your attention. Thank you for coming. But all but 300 of you can go home. You, you are now the the entire army. Now our odds are not awful. Our odds are unbearable. And God says, now you will see that I am God. Because I'm going to show you just what I can do with a few hearts surrendered completely to me. I got a call this week from somebody who, who said, you know what? Today I got to pray for somebody. A total stranger. I got to pray for them. And afterwards I was like, yes, that's so awesome. And it was so awesome because God answered his prayer. See, the night before when he went to sleep, his prayer was, Lord, let me pray with somebody tomorrow. Show them Jesus. Let me be part of your hands and your feet somewhere. He woke up and God answered that prayer. Can I tell you that's what God wants to do with you? But he's not going to do it unless you're looking for it. I got a letter from one of our physicians several weeks ago, uh, several months ago, actually, and I've kept it in my Bible. It just fits. It says, you know, you never know why you, you were placed in a certain situation at a particular place in time. This past week, I was working at a local hospital and was preparing to perform a radiology-guided biopsy on a patient, typically before the procedure. I will meet with the patient and their family, if they're around, in order to explain the procedure and get information to them and also to get informed consent signed. This typically allows me to get a good idea of who the patient is and why they were there to be seen by me. As I walked into the holding area to meet my next patient, a young woman, I could immediately sense pain, grief, sadness, and despair. She was balled up in a chair, all alone, refusing to look my way as I entered the room. And once she finally looked up to me, it was clear that she wore, I, she wore years of suffering on her face. Anxiety, depression, and shame had all taken root in her soul, and they had borne much fruit. 
After getting a basic history from her in order to assess how much medication she may need for sedation for the procedure, it became clear that these seemingly medical issues had been a result of previous terrible abuse on her. I finished explaining the procedure that I was going to perform and got the consent signed and I was moved to enter into her suffering and ask if she had ever considered forgiveness. I shared with her that forgiveness of others who have wronged me as well as forgiving myself have been paramount in the healing of my own past. I also share with her that I have a few close friends who have forgiven others, including family members, for severe physical and sexual abuse and, have for, and that forgiveness was the only way they were able to heal and move on with their lives. This concept of forgiveness resonated with her as her eyes stayed fixed on mine for the first time during our entire conversation. Before leaving the room, I asked if I could pray with her and for the procedure, she agreed. I prayed in the name of Jesus for chains to break, for forgiveness to take hold, and freedom to, man itself, to, to free, and for freedom to manifest. Her tears flowed like a river, and her whimpering sounded as if it were from a child. I pray that she found the strength to let go of her past and in her new future. Maybe our meeting simply provided a seed, but maybe, just maybe, it's the beginning of a new chapter in her life. A life filled with hope, joy, peace, and relationship with her Redeemer. I ask you today, if you need to forgive, don't wait. Freedom based on forgiveness and the goodness of our Savior is literally just a breath away. I also ask, when you are out in the world this week, that when you see pain, suffering, and despair in your neighbor, that you dare enter into that suffering in order to provide the hope that you have within you. Christ within you is the hope of glory. Do you have a story? Do you have a story? Do you want a story? Order your world in obedience. And ask God, God, make me your hands and your feet your stories will begin to pile up. You'll begin to see the goodness of God and understand His grace like never before. You'll be able to say with exceeding confidence, my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, Jesus will be honored and glorified with every fiber of my body. Let me close this way. The way we are to approach God is like a child approaches a father. It's not complicated. You don't have to be a scholar, although you should learn what the Bible says. If you can think of it this way, the father wants you to sit in his lap, sit at his feet, and just rest in him. But there's this part that many of us are missing. It's the actual want to. See, seeking is an intentional act. I'm afraid too many of us are mesmerized by the glitter and the glamour of this world. 
And God is simply another tool in the box. Won't you take away every other tool and throw away the box and say, all I need is Jesus. Because it's almost like Jesus said somewhere, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's almost like he said that. Oh wait, he did. Will you close your eyes and bow your head with me? As we're, as we're closing the service, I want to invite you first to trust Jesus Christ. Have you ever placed your faith in him? Have you ever said to him, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've offended you and I've offended your law. But I know that Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died. His life was given as a sacrifice so that I could be made free, be made right with God. Would you, if that's, if, if that's you, if you're in need of a relationship with God, would you trust Him today, even now? Right where you are, just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know you died for me and I ask you to come into my life. I place my faith in you. This morning, if your attention is in so many different things and God is not who you seek, would you simply commit now, this moment, to start ordering your world in obedience to tear down the detestable idols and to lift up worship and if you'll do that God will give you opportunity to shine like the stars in the universe as Matthew tells us Father in heaven I do pray that in this moment you will have pricked our hearts help us God to sense your presence and to know of your goodness. Lord, forgive us for making church a substitute for genuine relationship with the Father. God, forgive us for making faith just another thing in our life. God, help us to, like a child, make you our everything. Help us to seek you. And I pray, God, that as we need encouragement, you would give us courage. And I pray, Father, that as we grow weak, you would, you would give us faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.